Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Nobody likes pain, that's for sure. And yet pain often has a purpose behind it. At least that's what my dad used to tell me every time he'd give me a whipping. Remember the old saying, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? What did you think when he said that? I thought, yeah, right. Well, let's just reverse it then, shall we? But there was a purpose for it. Every time I went to the dentist, they had to convince me there's a purpose for this pain. I had a dentist who didn't believe in Novocaine. He believed in what they call topical spray. You spray this stuff, it's supposed to numb the gum. It doesn't. And then he just yanks like crazy. His name, by the way, was Dr. Steele. As in cold as. And old Dr. Steele would see me coming. And I tell you what, I, uh, I voiced my pain regularly in that chair. Pain can be a problem when we believe in God. Max Lucado, in his book, The Eye of the Storm, wrote, There is a window in your heart through which you can see God. Once upon a time, that window was clear. Your view of God was crisp. You could see God as vividly as you could see a gentle valley or hillside. The glass was clean, the window pane unbroken. You knew God. You knew how God worked. You knew what God wanted you to do. No surprises, nothing unexpected. You knew that God had a will, and you continually discovered what that will was. And then suddenly the window cracked. A pebble broke the window. It was a pebble of pain. Perhaps the stone struck when you were still a child and a parent left home forever. Maybe the rock hit in adolescence when your heart was broken. Maybe you made it into adulthood before the window was cracked, but then the pebble came. Was it a phone call? Someone who said, we have your daughter here at the station, you better come down. Was it a letter on the kitchen table that read, I've left, don't try to reach me, don't try to call me, it's over, I just don't love you anymore. Was it a diagnosis from the doctor who said, I'm afraid our news is not very good. Was it a telegram that read, We regret to inform you that your son is missing in action? 
Whatever the pebbles formed, the result was the same, a shattered window. That pebble missled into the window pane and shattered it. The crash echoed down the halls of your heart. Cracks shot out from that point of impact, creating a spider web of fragmented pieces. And then suddenly, God was not so easy to see anymore. The view that was once so crisp had changed. You turned to see God, and His figure was distorted. It was hard to see Him through the pain. It was hard to see through the fragments of hurt. Now, this is really where Psalm 73 picks up because Psalm 73, written by a guy named Asaph, in fact, you could call him a believer with a shattered window. He begins with a premise. That premise of God is challenged by a problem. He's then preoccupied with that problem and almost completely did him in. He almost lost his faith in God. And finally, he comes to a place... Of perspective. Now, notice at the beginning of the psalm, it says a psalm of Asaph. There are 11 psalms out of the 150 that are ascribed to this man Asaph. The rest are usually ascribed to David. Asaph was a worship leader in the temple. His whole family, the family of Levites, and principally this family, were the worship leaders for the children of Israel when they would come to the feast in Jerusalem to sacrifice. He was a person who was spiritual. He knew God. He believed in God. He was a pure-hearted individual. And yet he has a struggle with pain and suffering and evil. There are many stages in Psalm 73. Actually, I'm just going to look at four this morning, from verses 1 all the way through verse 28. Four stages four areas that he goes through before he finally resolves this issue of why am I suffering and the ungodly don't seem to be. It's a haunting question that we all ask from time to time. Um, I want you to understand a couple things before we move into this. The victory that he comes to was not reached instantaneously. He didn't just say, I bind everything negative and I claim total victory. doesn't work that way. There were stages that he went through. And there were stages of reasoning. He thought about this. In fact, uh, in verse 16, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. Why do I bring that up? Simply because I hear an awful lot of people with the sentiment that Christians aren't to think, just believe. In fact, just check your brain at the door when you come in and uh, believe. It's not true. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. Christians are commanded to reason. Now, there are things you don't understand, but that's where you take in the principles of faith, the principles of God, And it is reasonable to cling to a God who understands and is more powerful than you are. But in the Bible, the heart is never set against the mind. In fact, sometimes the heart and the mind are synonyms. And the heart is set against a false profession of the mouth. And so there are stages, victory by degrees. As he looks, he's perplexed, but he reasons it out. 
And he comes back to the right place. Look at verse 1. Here's his premise. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Now that's his basic conviction. This is where he begins. This is the approach not of a philosopher but of a believer. He's a man with a pure heart. He trusts God. He believes in God. Not only does he believe in God, but he believes in the essential characteristic of God, that my God is good. My God is good. Asaph, as a Jew, as an Israelite, is viewing God's activity throughout the history of the nation. God is good to Israel, he said. As if to say, when I look back over our history, and I remember the promises God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, and he fulfilled all of those promises. He brought us out of Egypt. He brought us into this land. We have a track record of God's goodness. Here's my basic conviction, my premise. God is good. Now, if you say you believe in God, I guess the question I would ask, what kind of God do you believe in? There's a lot of people who believe in God, but it is an inaccurate description of God that they think of. It is not true. Many people do not see God as a good God. I remember uh, speaking to a young woman not too long ago, and she said, I don't pray anymore. I'm mad at God. He let me down. Now, she had a basic premise that whoever God is, He's not very good. I'm not going to trust Him. I can't afford to trust Him. He'll let me down again. Some people see God as somebody who's angry and wants to punish there was a man witnessing to a teenager on the streets of Australia. And the young Australian teen said, Well, tell me, what, what is God like? And the person giving his witness said, Well, God is like a father. And the young teenager said, If he's anything like my father, I don't want anything to do with him. Then there are people who see God as the tolerant of everything God. Oh yes, God is this heavenly grandfather guy in the cloud stroking his beard, smiling at everybody and just lets everybody, no matter how aberrant, no matter how bad or evil, he understands, he just lets them all into heaven as long as they believe sincerely in something. But that wouldn't be a good God. God to be good has to be just. There are certain things that would demand God's intervention and God's judgment. So taking all of the history in consideration... I believe, Asaph said, that God is good. Actually, if you read the Bible with an open mind, you can come to no other conclusion. There's not a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. You see that there are so many adjectives that describe God as true, loving, just, and His activities all come to the conclusion that God is good. And the biblical writers speak of God as good. In fact, uh, after each creative act in the book of Genesis, after God on day one made something and on day two made something, what did he say? He said, it's good. He made something, he looked at it and said, this is good. In Psalm 107, the psalmist declares, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. David declares in Psalm 52, the goodness of God endures continually. And even Jesus himself, speaking of the nature of God, said, no one is good except for God. You know, 
you can view life either with a thankful heart as you look back over your life, over your week, over your month. You can look at all the bad little things that happened. Say, why would that happen? Or you can look back through all of the good things that happened. You know, one thing that people miss often, and I hope to speak more about it next week, is people look about life and they see the problem of evil. What about the problem of good? There is evil, but there is infinitely more good at any given time than there is evil. If you were to try to take a handful of dirt and pick out all of the iron and metal shavings in it, if you were to do it by hand, moving your fingers through the sand, oh, there's a little speck, you would get very few, if any, particles of metal. But if you sweep over that handful of dirt with a magnet, those invisible particles come instantly to the surface of the magnet. There are people who view life unlike Asaph, running their fingers through it and picking out, oh, there's a, maybe a good piece here and a good piece there. There are others who view all of their life, all of their week, all of their circumstances through the lens of thankfulness, and it's sort of like that magnet. They see so much to be thankful for. God is good. And that's where Asaph begins. However, though he begins with that premise, he has a problem, and that's what we move into beginning in verse 2 all the way down to verse 12. He's an obedient believer. He's a spiritual man. He's a worship leader. He's in the ministry. He knows that God is good, but he's not presently experiencing the goodness of God. Yeah, I know that in theory. I believe that as a basic conviction. However, my present experience is that my ungodly neighbors have it a lot better than I have. He becomes green with envy and ripe for trouble. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. My premise, God is good. My premise, however, is challenged by a problem And that is pain. A pebble has shattered my window. I don't view God the same anymore. I'm perplexed. Why would a good God allow such evil? Now that's a question that theologians and philosophers have argued with and grappled with for centuries. How could a God of love allow evil? The technical argument for that is theodicy. Theodicy. Which simply stated is this. If God is all-loving, all-good, and all-powerful, how could there be the existence of a preponderance of evil as we see it in the world today? If God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't He eradicate it? And if there is evil, maybe that means there is no God. How do you reconcile all those truths together? Um, Not only have theologians and philosophers grapple with it, so have we. We've all struggled with that. Why did this happen? Or have you ever heard somebody said, or maybe you have said it, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. I'm always perplexed about that little problem. Never got a good answer. Back in 1984, the Gallup organization polled people across the country. They said, if you wanted to ask God a question, what would it be? Here's the top three answers. Number one, why is there suffering in the world? Number two, will there ever be a cure for all diseases? And number three, why is there evil 
existing in the world. Now, what's Asaph's problem? Well, Asaph is viewing a certain group of people who he thinks have it better than anybody else. They're healthy, they're wealthy, they're wise, they're prosperous. Verse 4, notice what he says. There's no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble like other men. They're not plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them with a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Now, this is not an accurate picture, but it is an accurate rendering of how he feels. And keep this in mind. When a person suffers, his vision is narrowed. He's myopic. He doesn't see the big picture. But this is an accurate description by the Spirit of God of what Asaph is feeling and seeing at this moment. I have it bad. Nobody else has it as bad as I have. I'm isolated. I'm alone. Nobody's going through it like I am. Truth is, there are pangs in the death of an unbeliever. I've buried enough to know. But when a person is suffering, he feels alone, isolated, like he's the only one going through it. They don't have it bad. I have it bad. I don't understand it. This was so painful, he said, my feet almost slipped. Here I am standing in faith. I almost lost it. He's envious for three reasons. Number one, their prosperity in verse 3. The word in Hebrew is shalom. What does that mean? Peace. I was envious when I saw the shalom of the wicked. The peace, the contentment, the welfare. They got the money, they got the wealth, and when they get into trouble, they can buy their way out. He's envious of the prosperity. He's envious of the pride of the wicked. In verse 6, therefore pride serves as their necklace. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. God, I don't understand it. I'm praising you and they're mocking you. They won't even humble themselves and acknowledge that you are God in heaven. And then finally, popularity he's envious of. Verse 10, therefore his people return here. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They have increased in riches. I was envious. They're prosperous. They're prideful. They're popular. People run after them. It's still the same today, by the way. We, by nature, see people who have prospered and we make them icons, at least in our culture we do. There's a show on television, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous by Robin Leach. That's a very popular show. Because these people intrigue us. Look, at they've got everything. They've got mansions. They've got everything a man or a woman could desire. We make icons out of them. Asaph said, I was envious. Here I am, righteous and faithful, and I'm plagued. That's the language that he uses in the very next verse. Now, what do you do with that problem? Here's God. I believe He's good. He's shown that in history. He's faithful. He's all-powerful. He's all-loving. But there's a lot of evil, and a lot of the evil people have it better than the godly people, and that bothers me. How do you answer the problem? Well, it depends on who you are. 
Several people have tried several different ways to answer the problem. The atheist has his way. Atheism says essentially this. Because there is evil in the world that exists, a good, all-powerful, all-loving God can't exist. So I choose not to believe in God because there is so much bad and so much evil. So I am an atheist. Atheos, without God. God doesn't exist. But if God doesn't exist, then you have no ultimate system of values that exists. Because if God exists, you have an ultimate good and an ultimate bad, as determined by God. When you get rid of God, you get rid of good and bad. And this problem of suffering is also God. It's gone. It's eliminated. Because who's to say what is good and what is bad? If there is no system of values, everything's existential. You might say, oh, this is good. The argument is, well, it's good for you, but not for me. You determine what your own good is. You have no right to say what's good for me and what's bad for me. Well, if that's the case, you eliminate all values, then how do you know that that's evil? Well, there's nothing evil with that. It might be evil for you. It might feel hurtful to you. You know, I've often wondered in a philosophy class, a modern philosophy class, as the teacher is spewing forth truths like, everything is relative, there is no universal right and wrong. You make your own reality. You determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. If you were in the middle of class after he said that to walk up to his desk or her desk, pull out the drawer, rummage through her personal belongings, just throw stuff around and overturn the desk, teacher might say, stop that. You say, why? It's unacceptable. It's wrong. What do you mean it's wrong? It might be wrong to you, but it's right to me. I'm only living by your principles. Everything is relative. I'm an existentialist. Then there's the way of the agnostic. They say, I see evil in the world, and I don't know if God exists. I'm not quite sure. He might be out there. I just don't know. If he does exist, one cannot personally know him. An agnostic is basically a large question mark looking for answers. He doesn't know. And he admits, there may or may not be a God. I just am not certain. Atheism and agnosticism eventually can lead to hedonism, that is, selfish indulgence. Here's the rationale. If there is no God, and I can't tell if there is or isn't, I better make sure I have the best time I can now and get all that I can now and live for pleasure, for popularity, for fame now. This earth may be it. You become like Epicurus and the ancient Greeks. Pleasure is the chief aim. And that will eventually lead a person to becoming a fatalist. I mean, what's the purpose of life? Is this it? Uh, there was a brilliant man, a Russian named Dr. Albert Zent Georgi, who was a Nobel Prize winner in medicine and physiology. He was asked, Doctor, what would you do or what would you say to your classmates if you were 20 years old today? Here's his answer. I would share with my classmates the rejection of all of the world as it is. Is there any point in studying and working? Fornication. At least that is something good. What else is there to do? Fornicate and take drugs. 
against this terrible strain of idiots who govern the world. Boy, what an optimistic sort of a fella, huh? His mechanistic view has led to absolute fatalism. Another way to deal with the problem of pain and God is deism. Deism simply says, God exists. I know that He exists. He's just not involved. He exists, but He's not present. God is like a large, giant clockmaker who wound up the clock and just watches it go. He steps back. He's not involved. And he's rather helpless. If you've ever seen a book which deals with this issue, um, it's actually, in some practical ways, a good book, but fundamentally it's in error. It's a book called Why Good Things Happen to Bad People by Dr. Rabbi Harold Kushner. He was a deist who said, God would love to help people get what they deserve in life, but he can't arrange it. And so he encourages us to forgive God. Oh, God, I know you'd like to work, and you can't. I forgive you. And he says, some things God does not control. A fourth way of dealing with the problem of pain and suffering in God is to create a false theology, as many have done today. This is how it goes. Evil and pain and sickness exist, but if you're a Christian, you don't have to have any of them. It's an oversimplification to a complex problem. It might exist, but if you're a Christian, you're above it all. You're above the curse. How do you escape it? Right words, right thinking. If you have wrong words and wrong thinking, you create your own reality by your own words, pessimistic words or faith-filled words. And so when you see evil, you don't allow the evil to come your way. You claim victory. You bind the enemy. I've heard some of them say that even if you're joking, if you say things like, oh, you know, that just tickles me to death, that when you say that, you're sowing seeds of death into your life and you can cut your life short. I guess my question would be, what if you say, well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. (laughs) I heard of three people who were driving in a car and the driver asked the person in the Passenger seat, hey, how are you feeling lately? He said, oh, I'm, I'm a little sick. Oh, don't say that you're sick. Say you think you're sick, but you're really not sick. Don't claim that. Okay, I'm sorry. I think I'm sick. He asked the person in the back seat, hey, whatever happened to that uh, elderly grandfather of yours? He said, oh, he thinks he's dead. It borders on the ludicrous. It's an oversimplification to a complex human problem. It exists, but I don't have to experience any of it. Certainly God, a God of love, would never allow it to happen to one of his children. Then there's the biblical perspective. And that's what we want to look at, not only last week, this week, but in the ensuing weeks when we talk about suffering. We want to get a biblical perspective. Next week we're going to look at Job and his perspective and others. There's a lot of reasons. There's not one simple little reason why bad things happen, why evil exists. There's several. Number one, we know there's a super being called the devil who rebelled against God from the beginning. 
He in turn influenced man. Man by choice rebelled against God from the beginning and is still in rebellion against God. There are rebellious rulers at large in the world today who put their own people in jeopardy and throw them into wars and kill them. You might even say that evil is a result of choice, freedom of choice. Here's a choice. You can do this or you can do that. You can obey God or you can rebel against God. If you rebel against God, consequences are bound to happen. You could also look at it from a natural perspective. There are certain laws that govern the universe. There's the law of gravity. You can stand on a large building and say, I believe if I jump, I won't splat. But you will. You will. There's natural things like hurricanes. We see them as evil, but actually a hurricane is simply a way to release the pent-up energy created on the earth. It can be very good and helpful. But if you get in the way of that, disaster is going to occur. There are fault lines around the earth so that the plates and the crust can adjust. That's good. But you build your house on that fault line, and it's a risk. A bad thing might happen, even if you're a good person. Now, as we look at Psalm 73... Asaph moves from the premise, God is good, to the problem, evil exists, now to a preoccupation with himself in this pain. Look at verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. Hear what he's saying there? I'm serving God, living a clean life for nothing. I've washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children when I thought to understand this. It was too painful for me. That's the honest confession of a suffering person. Now, others might look at that and say, that's a negative confession. Listen, he's only telling what you and I think oftentimes. He's honest enough to voice it before the Lord. This almost did me in. It was too painful for me. He couldn't pretend to be victorious. It bothered him. But in verse 15, he alludes to the fact that he was afraid to tell God's people about how he felt because it might stumble some of them, especially the younger believers. If he were to share the honest frustrations of his heart, people wouldn't understand. There's an important lesson in that. If you expect all the time for God's children to understand what you're facing, you might be in for a big surprise. Uh, God's children are often famous for... Pat answers. Oh, pat you on the back. Don't worry about it. Oh, just trust God and whistle. And you walk away thinking, oh, they don't understand. You can't always expect them to understand. They're not facing what you're facing. They're not sitting where you're sitting. And so he says, you know, I, I was going to tell them this, but I don't think they'd understand. It might cause a few even to stumble. It's a critical time for Asaph. He's at a crossroads. What's he going to do? Well, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Up at the beginning of the psalm, he said, I almost slipped. Sounds like he was ready to cash it in. Maybe go the way of agnosticism or something else. He made the right step. He comes after a preoccupation to a perspective in verse 17. He says, it was too painful for me until... 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places and cast them to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. What did he do? He sought the Lord. He was a temple worshiper. He led worship in the temple. It was natural for him to pray in the temple. He could have prayed to God anywhere, but he went into the temple. He went where the congregation comes. And he sought the Lord in the midst of the congregation in the temple, and it gave him perspective. Now, that's an important principle. Oftentimes, I find that when Christians suffer, they hightail it and run the other way. They stop seeking the Lord. They stop reading their Bible. They stop coming to church. It's sort of, I'm going to take my ball and go home attitude. God didn't meet my expectation. I'll turn and run the other way. And it's deeper into despair they go. But when a person enters into the sanctuary of God and is committed to, I need to get together in a place of worship and hear the Word of God, there's a perspective change that happens. You hear songs that tell you about God's truth. That myopia is broadened. You see the big picture. You hear a message from the Word of God that corrects your thinking. You're able to make better choices now. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhort one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, what did he understand when he went into the sanctuary? Their end, verse 17. I thought how good they have it. I thought how bad I have it. It almost did me in. But then I got an eternal perspective and I played out their life all the way to the end. And I thought, ooh, I'm not in a slippery place. They are. Notice how he describes it, verses 18 and 19. Here's the future of the wicked. Destruction, desolation, utterly consumed with terrors. Changes your perspective, doesn't it? You think, oh, they're on easy street, but look where the street's going. See, it doesn't matter where you are, but where you're going. He took the eternal perspective. Sort of reminds me of Jesus' question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but what? Loses his own soul. Now, I look at the wicked. There's no pangs in their death. They've got everything they want. I'm plagued. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? If you have everything that this world has to offer, but you do not have a relationship with God, you are bankrupt. That's the perspective that he needed. Now he's going to get back closer and closer to the premise where he started out, that God is good. Verse 20, As a dream when one awakes, so the Lord, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In other words, I was thinking on an animalistic level. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. That's so beautiful. I almost slipped, but God, I discovered that you're holding on to me. You're not going to let me slip. You know, when I walked my son across the street... More when he was younger. Now he's sort of a man. He's seven years old. But still, when I know it's a busy area and he's going across traffic, I don't want him to slip. 
I will grab his hand. I do not depend on his little hand grabbing my hand. I've got a grip of his hand. I'm not going to let him go. I'll guide him across that street from one end to the other safely. Lord, I realized something. You've got a grip on me. I'm not in slippery places after all. I'm understanding things from an eternal perspective. Getting together in the worship of the saints and studying the truth has helped me to see it. You will guide me, verse 24, with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But... Look at where he ends. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I might declare all your works. Now Asaph is at a place of a firm footing again. He doesn't feel slippery. God has a hold of me. Afterwards I'll be in glory. I have to see the eternal, not just the temporary. God is holding me. God is guiding me. And then in verse 28 at the end, that I might declare all your works. See, part of Asaph's problem is he was seeing just a few of the allowances of God. How could God be good and loving and allow evil? I didn't see the whole picture. Now I'm going to declare all your works. I see the abundance of good. I see your track record in my history. I don't understand what's happening, but from the eternal perspective, they're in slippery places, and I'm going to be ushered into glory. It's good for me to draw near to God. Question. Did Asaph's situation change when he went into the sanctuary? Was it a magical step? Did he walk in and, boom, all the problems were gone? No, what changed? He did. They didn't change. The wicked still were prosperous. He was still plagued, but his heart changed. You know, there's an old saying, prayer changes things. That's true, but it doesn't always change the things that you want. Sometimes it changes you more than the circumstance. And Asaph walks out understanding the full gamut. P.T. Forsythe said, it's a greater thing to pray for pain's conversion than to pray for pain's removal. It's a greater thing to pray for pain's conversion than to pray for pain's removal. Although that's our first instinct, God, get rid of it. No, I want you to change. If God were to get rid of it, we might, we may not grow. Our roots may not grow deep enough. It's good for me to draw near to the Lord. This psalm is like a skyscraper. When you build a skyscraper, and I haven't done it personally, I've just observed it. You begin with a premise. You've got a blueprint. But then you begin, and you begin by digging a huge hole in the ground for a foundation. And you look down in the deep hole and it goes, it's pretty dark down there. They're just moving a lot of mud down there. Pretty dim. But eventually it's built, and the thing towers beautifully to the heavens. He begins with a premise, but he looks down in the hole and goes, I almost slipped. But at the end, he's soaring. He went from a premise to a problem to being preoccupied with himself, and he could have ended there, like a lot of people do. Woe is me. But he said, I went into the sanctuary. 
I understood the eternal perspective. And it's good that I draw near God. I want to close with five simple, quick things for you to take home from this psalm. And I'm giving these to you so that you and I can apply them whenever we face suffering or trials. Number one, when you do realize that even some of the most spiritual people suffer. Guys like David, Asaph, Job, and many others. You're not alone. There's comfort in that. Some of the godliest people suffered horrible things. Secondly, honesty before God is the best policy. You don't have to con God. Oh, God, I just know everything's going to be great. You can be honest with Him. God, I don't feel like it's all going to be great. This is exactly how I feel in my heart. They've got it good. I've got it bad. doesn't mean you have to dwell and live there forever. But Asaph was honest when he poured out his heart before God. Thirdly, worship, prayer, and fellowship help you to see things clearly. When you are plagued, don't run the opposite direction. Run toward God's people. Be committed to fellowship. Don't be a sporadic spectator. In fact, a lot of people do that. They will just come if there's a world war about to happen. Draw near constantly. It's good that I draw near the Lord in good times and in bad times. Fourthly, prayer may not change things the way you want to, but prayer offered rightly will change you. Prayer offered rightly will change you, your view of things, the way you look at things, the way you feel about things. And finally, you will grow if you draw near to the Lord. You will grow. Your roots will grow deeper. You will be a man or woman of greater character if you draw near to the Lord. And if you choose to cling tenaciously to Him. Abraham Lincoln, who was quoted as saying, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I've had nowhere else to go. Could it be that those things are allowed in our lives so that we come to that conclusion? God, there's nowhere else to go. God's saying, I know. I've just been waiting for you to know that. And now you know it. You might be here this morning and you've gone many different places in life. You may have all sorts of things on your behalf, but without God you have nothing. And today would be the day where you should turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What will it profit you if you become successful in your business, wealthy beyond measure, healthy all of the time, if it's only so temporary and you lose your own soul. I urge you and encourage you to give your life to Him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for Your goodness. It is constant. It is incessant. I pray, Father, that we might look at our lives with thankfulness and trust. That we would have basic, firm convictions. Not only that God exists, but that God is good. Though we don't understand everything, there are certain things we do know, and the things that we do know would take us through those tough times. I pray, Lord, as we look around, that we wouldn't dwell on what we see, 
that we wouldn't just look around or look within, but look up to you and see things in a spiritual reality and conclude by saying it's good to draw near to God. May you be our first, not our last recourse. In Jesus' name, amen.